Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studio in Alpharetta, it's time for Profit Sense with Bill McDermott. Good morning. Welcome to Profit Sense. This podcast dives into the stories behind some of Atlanta's successful businesses and business owners and the professionals that advise them. We help local business leaders get the word out about the important work they're doing to serve their market, their community, and their profession. I'm your host, Bill McDermott, and this show is presented by McDermott Financial Solutions. When business owners want to increase their profitability, they don't have the expertise to know where to start or what to do. I leverage my knowledge of relationships from 32 years as a banker to identify the hurdles getting in the way and create a plan to deliver profitability they never thought possible. And we have two great guests on the show today. Uh, Jeff Berman is managing partner with Berman Fink Van Horn. Jeff, welcome. So glad to have you on the show. Bill, thanks to have me. Thanks for having me. And also Brian Olson, uh, founder and president of Cafe Intermezzo. Brian, welcome. So glad you're here this morning. Bill, thank you so much. And thank you as well for the invitation. We really appreciate it. And Jeff, I'm going to start with you. You know, uh, studies are showing over the next 20 years that either somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 million privately owned businesses will sell or transfer with an estimated worth of about $10 trillion in assets. That is a bunch of businesses. Yes, what I really want to talk about is, uh, is of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, a lot of people have taken PPP loans. And so what steps does someone who is selling their business have to take regarding a PPP loan to comply with the SBA? Bill, things changed a lot on October 2nd of this year. Um, the SBA issued a notice. And if you are selling your business post October 2nd of this year, there are steps you have to take um, related to your PPP loan. If you've not paid off the loan or satisfied the loan, the company is requ- your company is required to submit your forgiveness application to your lender and More importantly, and more difficultly, you are required as the selling company to deposit the outstanding amount of the PPP loan into an escrow account with the lender. So effectively, the SBA wants to be sure that if you do have to repay the loan, that the money is there. And for for large companies, where there are multi-million dollars changing hands, depositing a half a million or a million dollars into an escrow account, um, while not something they are looking forward to doing, they can afford to do it. Um, We have been involved in numerous deals since October 2nd, with closings taking place post-October 2nd, um, one of which was a very small deal, under a million dollars. And they are today still struggling trying to come up with the ability to deposit $500,000, the amount of their PPP loan, with their 
PPP lender. So unless you take those steps that in dealing with the SBA, um, you are in violation of that notice. So far, nobody knows what the outcome will be if you do not follow those steps. But we are clearly advising people to take those steps because you do not want to risk the SBA saying you violated the terms and therefore you've got to repay the loan when you may not have had to had you jumped through the proper hoops. So if you're selling and whether that's stock or assets, be sure you're aware of that procedural notice and you deal with it appropriately. Well, that's incredibly valuable information. I was not aware of that. So uh, I hope our listening audience will uh, will take note. Talking about PPP loans, and of course, PPP loans came as a result of the pandemic. Uh, I do want to talk with you about uh, maybe portions of the M&A process that have changed the most during the pandemic. So if you had to talk a little bit about what portions of the M&A process have changed the most during the pandemic, what would those be? I guess first off, and potentially the most obvious would be the due diligence process. Um, we're all used to sitting around tables, um, visiting locations, and while that is still being done in some, some form, um, due diligence is taking place much more, obviously, virtually. And so that, from a, from a buyer's standpoint, I think buyers are seeing <clears throat> increased risk um, that their due diligence isn't as thorough as it might have been. <clears throat> the repercussion for that that we've seen is buyers are being much more aggressive in terms of representations and warranties that they want in a purchase agreement. Um, So if they can't, for instance, easily verify in an asset sale, the amount of inventory at a location, um, they may be viewing it virtually, and then they are relying upon the buyer to represent how much inventory is there. If the, the buyer I'm sorry, the buyer is requiring the seller to represent the amount of inventory. And if that amount turns out to be incorrect, then the buyer is going to have a claim against the seller. So there's much more emphasis by a buyer on getting reps and warranties that are more stringent, I think, than they were pre-COVID. Also, we are seeing more detailed letters of intent. You know, historically, there are some people that wanted very detailed letters of intent, but more often than not, a letter of intent was very high level. Purchase price, whether it was stock or asset, employment, just agreement that there would be some employment, employment agreements, that there would be due diligence and a closing. And that was pretty high level. That was it. I think now LOIs are getting much more into the granular range, actually laying out what the restrictive covenants are going to be like, Um, just getting much more granular 
it seems really buyers and sellers want to be more comfortable that the deal's really going to happen. Um, and that that takes place in a letter of intent now where it did not so much pre um, the pandemic. And as we all know, letters of intent traditionally are not binding on anybody. Sure. Um, I'm actually seeing binding letters of intent now. Again, that people want to know these terms we are agreeing upon are the terms. So those are probably the two, the two big areas. There are, <clears throat> I don't want to get too technical here, but there are there are many things within the purchase documents that are different. Um, again, buyers are being more aggressive in things they want to be sure they're being protected in terms of what they're buying. Sure. So what I'm hearing is it's primary, primarily representations and warranties and then versus uh, non-binding letters of intent have been some binding letters of intent and things, of course, that may be a little more buyer friendly. Having come from a banking background, Jeff, this sounds similar to in a recession or, you know, credit generally tightens. And so it feels like maybe the the requirements of an M&A transaction are tightening due to the pandemic as well. I think so. And Bill, you said it better than I did. So thank you. Uh, Um, No, you said it. You said it great. Um, So let's pretend I'm a business owner. I'm thinking about selling my business. You know, simply put, I can sell it to an insider. Uh, I consider uh, an insider a family member, potentially, uh, or sell it to a third party. Uh, I call that an outsider. So in in your opinion, is it better to transfer your ownership of your company to family or sell it to a third party? What's what's been your experience on that? Um, We we represent a lot of family-owned businesses. And obviously, a family-owned business is very unique, particularly compared to a business that's not. Um, most family-owned businesses and the the patriarch of that business wants to sell it to their family. I think that's their initial. I want to keep it in the family. Then, when you when you sit down with that person and really start walking through, is the sale or transfer to a family member really in everybody's best interest. You know, one thing you have to look at is, is there a family member who is prepared to take over the, to take over the business? Not every family has that. Um, You want to be as sure as you can that whoever it is that you're going to pass it to really can run it. Um, The, the, the follow-up to that is, can that family member afford to buy the business? Can they go to a bank, as you know, Bill, and borrow the money to, to fund the business or to, to fund the purchase of the business? Or is the, the owner going to sell or finance? You know, in, in that event, the, the owner is taking the risk that the family member can't run it. You know, and as we approach Thanksgiving, um, even though we're not maybe sitting together, but still it's a bad day if a family member um, can't run the business properly 
and the parent who was selling the business isn't getting paid. Um, that's many times the, you know, the, the retirement plan. So what, what we find is when you, or I guess one other piece, many times you have one family member involved in the company and others are not. So from, a, from an estate planning standpoint, even balancing, one person's going to get the, the, the income producing <clears throat> property from the estate maybe, and other family members are not. So balancing that is really difficult that we've seen. Take some hard discussions within the family. Um, in our experience, we find that many people, when they go through that process, um, they determine that, heck, a sale to an outside third party may be the way to go. You can get employment agreements for the family members that are involved. The seller <clears throat> typically gets cashed out. Um, so you, you eliminate a lot of the risk and potential frustrations. Um, there's not a <clears throat> bright line that, yes, you keep it in the family. No, you don't. But you got to talk about it within the family to be sure that at the end of the day, it really is the right decision um, that hopefully produces the, the best result for the family. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's a process, and that process usually evolves over time. And, and Bill, you know, it's it many times it's pretty difficult for a family member to be able to borrow the money to buy out the owner of the company. Yeah, absolutely. So we were talking earlier a little bit about uh, representations and warranties, uh, but I now want to shift to a concept uh, restrictive covenant agreements. So how important are restrictive covenant agreements uh, in the sale of a business, Jeff? Extremely. Um, one word, extremely. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. In my firm, <clears throat> several of the attorneys spend most of their time dealing with restrictive covenants. And in fact, um, in, the mo in the October Georgia Bar Journal, which is a magazine published by the State Bar of Georgia, three of the attorneys in my firm had articles published dealing with restrictive covenants. Um, in terms of importance in an M&A deal, if you are a buyer and you're buying a company that has many salespeople, if those salespeople do not have covenants <clears throat> that either protect, protect um, the company from those salespeople going to a competitor or contacting um, customers or disclosing confidential information, that buyer is going to be less willing to pay a price that the seller wants because if the buyer buys the business, there are people immediately out there who can compete who know the customers, who know what the deals were. So from a buyer's standpoint, that's a nervous buyer because, again, there is readily available competition. Um, from a seller's standpoint, <clears throat> the seller recognizes, hopefully, that's the case also, so that the price <clears throat> that they can receive for the business is going to be less, if, if, if at all. Um, 
So we always recommend to business owners that, number one, whether they're looking to sell their business or not, restrictive covenants. And when I say restrictive covenants, I mean a non-compete agreement or an agreement to not solicit or hire employees or not solicit customers and protecting your confidential information. So we recommend those whether you're looking to sell or not, because you got to protect your business. If you are looking to sell your business, ideally you get those kind of covenants in place well before the sale. I have seen transactions and one in particular stands out where we were after a client to get everybody under a restrictive covenant. He had one employee that did not have one and he knew he didn't need one. And this was a $30 million transaction. So there was there were decent dollars changing hands. The day before closing, this woman had still not signed a covenant that the buyer was requiring. She walked away with a half a million dollars to sign a covenant on the date of closing because she knew she had so much leverage and there was so much money at stake that our client had no choice but to pay her way more than they would have ever had to pay her to get a covenant from her a year or two in advance of the closing. So you got to have them, um, is our opinion. Um, And from a buyer standpoint, they're likely going to require them post-transaction also. But to protect the value of your company, you've got to have those restrictive covenants in place with all of your existing people that have serious knowledge about the company and that could potentially compete with a buyer. So again, when I say you got to have them, I've seen where if you don't, the repercussions are, can be substantial. Yeah. From that story, I can, uh, I can clearly see that. Wow. What a, uh, what a great uh, amount of information in such a short period of time. Uh, I'm going to guess that we probably have some uh, uh, potential M&A listeners. Uh, Jeff, if uh, one of our listening audience wants to get in touch with you and the firm, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably the best way today is number one, email. And my email address is the letter J, Berman, B as in boy, E-R-M-A-N, at B as in boy, F as in Frank, V as in Victor, law, L-A-W dot com. Or calling my cell number, 404-276-7711. I am still working remotely, so my cell number is the best way to get in touch. And, and Bill, you know, and um, I mean, we're this way together. We're there to help each other. Um, you know, if, if, if someone is thinking about selling and they just want to talk a little bit about it and hear what I've got to say, I'm always happy to talk to people. People have always been very helpful to me, um, like you have, Bill. And, and so I, I am a firm believer in playing it forward. So I, I encourage people to give me a call and I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. And as always, I say, we're not on the clock until we've got a, a signed engagement letter. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk. 
Bill, well, thank, thank you, you for, for that. Letting and, thank you for letting yeah. me be here today. And thank you for your generous offer. I really appreciate that. I'm now going to switch over to Brian Olson. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Brian is founder and president of Cafe Intermezzo. And if you ever had an espresso or a dessert at one of his locations, I just kind of want to get that in your mind as Brian and I talk. So, Brian, welcome. And really, I want to ask you kind of the whole inspiration of Cafe Intermezzo is about a European coffee house. So what is a European coffee house and what differentiates it from the coffee shops so prevalent now, like a Starbucks? Well, thank you, Bill, and thank you for the invitation to be here. I really appreciate it. Uh, if I could, to define European coffee house, I would like to go back for a moment to when I first discovered what that is myself. And I had had a passion to visit Germany for a long time. My mom's heritage is German. She's American-born, but they, were, they spoke German on the farm in Minnesota and uh, were a very, very, are a very German family named Talman. So I got, when I was 23, the opportunity to zoom over to, uh, to Europe for the first time, and my first stop was Berlin. And my cousin's sister-in-law lived there, and uh, she was very gracious to take me around and introduced me to a concept called a konditorei, K-O-N-D-I-T-O-R-E-I, German term. And I walked in and was awed by the beauty of this place, the uh, uh, peacefulness, the the elegance of it. And yet it was elegance, not like a fine dining restaurant is elegant. It was elegant in a manner of being able to walk in and sit out and have a cup of coffee and uh, classical music playing. This is 1971, I'm talking, so there, were no, there was no one on their laptop. People writing in journals, newspapers hanging all over the place. And the European coffee house concept, I found there were many conditorei in Berlin and in Germany. As I traveled into Austria, I found where they uh, basically were invented in Vienna and brought uh, by the Turks when they were marching through Europe over 250 years ago, who brought with them that soldiers brought coffee and set a guy up named Kolschitsky, a uh, Polish Serb, and uh, in Vienna to make coffee for the for the soldiers. And they ended up leaving, of course, and uh, and left coffee there. And as the Habsburg Empire grew, the triangular cities of of uh, Vienna, Budapest, and Prague uh, all adopted a deep passion for the European coffee house. So what that means is, to get back to answering your question, is it originated in Europe. It's a place where people can go and do what they want. I think that's the capstone statement. You can tailor it to what you want it to be. And people would go and write again, as I said earlier, write in their journals and hang out. And it became almost a a quasi with a small r religious experience for many Viennese, for example. As a matter of fact, a fellow named Leon Trotsky, who some of us uh, have studied history, know about Leon Trotsky. He planned the whole Russian Revolution in Café Central in Vienna, sitting at the same table every day, the same time every day, 
Germanic people I have found tend to be pretty precise on their timing. I mean, people would go to the same chair at the same table every day at the same time and wow. uh, at least five to seven days a week and have their coffee, have their pastry, talk with friends, read the newspaper and converse and solve the world's problems. And so that's the European coffee house. The emanation of coffee, coffee shops today, as I, as I call them, uh, wonderful American coffee shops like Starbucks and, uh, uh, and the likes of Starbucks, of course, Starbucks being the, the biggest ones, uh, are a place to go get coffee, <clears throat> but they're, well, and maybe instead of a word, but I'll say and, the conjunction and, their purpose is to, to serve coffee. And as Howard Schultz said when he was putting Starbucks together, I really want this to become the McDonald's of coffee. And uh, and successfully did so to a raging successful degree, as we all know. So it was more the the coffee as the beverage that's the product. With Cafe Intermezzo as a European coffee house, and my immediate passion for that in 1971 as it grew, I didn't open Cafe Intermezzo in Dunwoody until 1979, having moved to a few cities around the country and settled in Atlanta. And at the time, I also happened to be importing and selling espresso machines to restaurants, which sort of obviously tied together into this into this long-held dream of opening a European coffee house. I found a location in Park Place and was putting it together and had this vision that what this has to be is a place where people can go and choose to do what they want to do. They can spend 10 minutes and get a cup of coffee. They can spend four hours and plan a revolution, plan their own revolution in their life, or romance people. And over the years, we became a, a mecca, I'm, I'm proud and gratified and grateful to say, for romantic experiences, people coming in and, and proposing, men and proposing to women, and men together, women together, and just making Cafe Intermezzo a romantic opportunity to do what they want to do to move their life forward. And the classical music, uh, the, it's, it's an appeal to all five senses, the music being very, very important to it. Uh, the smells, the, the, the views of pastries on display when you walk in. This is something that touched me when I walked into my first Conditorei in Berlin, was the elegant pastries lined up on a display cabinet and it was so beautiful and so intriguing and i grew up with uh in a family of, of my mom's family were all women and farmers in minnesota and they all baked beautifully so i grew up with a passion for for pastries and cakes and what have you so it turned out to be a very uh, uh wonderful transition to be able to open my own then in the meantime i wanted it to be a prominent spot for coffee of course, thus again, back to the name European Coffee House, coffee being a fundamental to what it's all about. So I was able to, uh, because of my relationship at the time to marketing espresso machines and traveling the Southeast and selling them to people, and then eventually doing so nationwide, selling them to restaurant owners, generally, or coffee shop owners, I designed the uh, largest espresso machine in the world, which we happen to have at Cafe Intermezzo at all four of them. And uh, they're all the same size. And uh, that's disputed by, by some people at USC who claim they have the, uh, in the Guinness book, the largest espresso machine in the world. But 
I'm disputing that because it's not an espresso machine. It's a coffee brewer. And espresso is an extraction of coffee, not a brew. And it's extracted under pressure, thus giving espresso the rich nature uh, of what it has and the lack of of uh, negative elements like no tannic acid is in a true a well-made cup of espresso and half the caffeine per ounce that regular drip coffee has. Sure. Well, your, uh, your passion and your enthusiasm is, is really coming through Brian. And I did want to take you to, uh, uh, I know you selected Atlanta and Dunwoody for your first location, but, but where, uh, what made you decide where and also when uh, did you open the first cafe intermezzo? Well, I picked Dunwoody because almost a sort of a default element to my life at the time. I, I had moved from Minneapolis. I had, I had moved to two, from Tucson, Arizona, back to my original home of Minneapolis and then began marketing espresso machines, traveling the upper Midwest and wanted a better market, a better restaurant market with more restaurants. And the Southeast was available in our, our company, we were based in Los Angeles. So I picked the Southeast and picked Atlanta because I loved the city. I traveled here for the first time and, and immediately fell in love with the beauty of Atlanta. And this is 1977. And when the, by the way, the Darlington uh, population sign said right at a million and a quarter people. And that sign now I think is pushing 6.8 million. something. Yeah. Like that. So that yeah. turned out to be a pretty good choice. Uh, uh, but it, it, in, I happened to decide to live in Dunwoody and uh, bought a little place, a little home in Dunwoody. And then as I was traveling around, uh, driving around, uh, hitting the road, hitting the highway to sell machines, I saw a shopping center under construction in Dunwoody early in 1979 in the spring called Park Place, right across the street from Perimeter Mall. Perimeter Mall at that point was starting to mature. It was five years old, typical maturity for a, for a mall. And, but Park Place was across the street, and th- as its name implies, it had and has this central area that was very green with trees, just beautiful. Park Place, and I, I toured through it, it had very high ceilings. It had the configuration that I saw my cafe intermezzo needed to be. And by the way, at this point, I had been assembling since 1971 a, a, a notebook a three ring binder of ideas for what I thought this place would be. And I created the logo, the name cafe intermezzo based upon cafe, meaning coffee intermezzo, the meaning the Italian term born out of the opera for intermission. And I thought I want this place to be an intermission in someone's day. Thus the name. And uh, so I had all this put together. I saw the spot negotiated with, with uh, a company, two gentlemen called Taylor and Mathis who were developing park place and uh, and signed a lease for a little 1,015 square foot space there in uh, uh, April of 1979. And by the grace of God and a lot of good luck and a lot of great people was able to get open, scrape together some money and get the operation open uh, December 3rd, 1979. So this December 3rd, the first cafe will be 41 years old. Wow. What a great story. Now, I have been to your location there in Dunwoody. Uh, I've also been to your location in uh, Avalon Shopping Center. Um, what do you think your guests see as the attraction to Cafe Intermezzo? That's an interesting question. Uh, 
and it's it's very different. I've heard very different commentary over all these years. Uh, it's a place where, again, getting back to this point, the guest can do what they want to do. They can come in and make it the experience they want. It's very tailorable. Unlike a, a fine dining restaurant, of which Atlanta is proud and 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 fortunate to have many. Uh, you go into a fine dining restaurant and typically you're planning on a certain time span, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, whatever that might be. Uh, if it's two people, four people, whatever. And you're planning on having dinner and maybe beverages to go with that typically. And, and so your experience is kind of, uh, prejudged if you will with cafe intermezzo, it's more of a clean slate. You can walk in, look around and enjoy it. Just sit down at a table if one wishes and enjoy the beverages, food items, perhaps pastry items, depending on the time of day, whatever that guest wants to, or those guests want to. And if they come in to talk and communicate, uh, so be it. Uh, over the years, we've had the, uh, the experience of, a lot of people, especially when the economy was dipping, it was so interesting to watch because I had friends and, and felt for them who uh, had fine dining restaurants who were watching sales decline during recessionary times. And we've certainly had a few of those in the last 41 years. And yet our sales at Cafe Intermezzo tended to not do that. We tended to see the same same level, maybe a little bit slower growth than we were used to, but still growing. And I would question people on that to learn over the years what caused that. And they said, well, we can come in and we can do what we want. We, we still like getting out. We don't have the money to go spend 80 or or $100, depending on what era we're talking about, $100 for two people having dinner. But, and we don't want to spend the money, even if they do. But we do want to get out and have an opportunity. So we might buy something at the deli or have something from from the grocery store in our refrigerator, have dinner, and then come to Cafe Intermezzo. And as a product of that, people would come after dinner at 9, 9.30 at night. Our sales through evolution were growing in the nighttime category. Very interesting to observe. Uh, we'd be, we were open all day, morning until night, but it kept getting later until it got to the point at my, at my Brookwood location in South Buckhead, we were open until 4 a.m. for 16 years. And, uh, 16 years of its 25 year life. And so people would come in after dinner and, uh, or come in and have dinner if they chose, but come in at nine, 10 at night. Interesting to watch the demographics of the average age dropping at that point at night. So at 11 at night, you know, at six at night in the evening, our average age through the customer base that at that moment in time might've been 35 and by 11 at night, it was probably 25. So, uh, you know, it, it was dropping significantly. And a lot of college students, Jeff, to your alma mater, a lot of Emory students were were participating and, and enjoying, I'm grateful to say, Cafe Intermezzo on Peachtree in South Bucket. And, uh, and it's very, of course, very uh, conducive to educated people and college students coming in, people who are involved in their education at the time and talking, coming in in groups of two, four, six, whatever, and communicating as they do so prevalently in the coffee houses in Europe. And uh, I was at one huge cafe in Munich near the university and and uh, years ago. And I mean, it was just packed with 
college student people with berets and, you know, very international and very uh, avant-garde and very educated, interesting, interested people in, in lively conversation. That's another thing people can, can do at Cafe Intermezzo is have conversation. And, and because the sound levels tend to be, even though it gets busy at night, for which I'm also grateful, the sound levels tend to be conducive to being able to hear each other talk. And so uh, there was for years in Park Place in Dunwoody, a nightclub that was very successful for 10 years called Elan. And people would leave the nightclub at midnight and then come to Cafe Intermezzo. They would may have met at the nightclub, but it's, it's, they want to talk. And this is one of the realities that I learned born out of that and born out of our existence all these years is that our clientele are about 70% female. Females, I have found over the years, have driven the, the customership, if you will, the guestship to Cafe Intermezzo very prominently, as females often do in the dining out experience. If they, they'll suggest, especially when we're like high school guys, you know, we don't know what to do. We see a movie and then, okay, where should we go now? We let the girl decide in many cases or the friend we're with or whatever. And uh, people would say, oh, let's go to female would say, for which again, I'm grateful. Let's go to Cafe Intermezzo because we can actually talk. We can actually hear each other. And it's not, you know, it's not an entertainment venue with live music in the back. I mean, loud music in the background or live music. So that makes it very conducive. Yeah, I know for me, Brian, I I love the desserts there. Uh, talking about your clean slate earlier, uh, I love to come in for a cup of coffee, maybe an espresso. Uh, your desserts are fabulous. I mean, everything I've had there is fabulous, but I have a sweet tooth, so I I love the desserts. What are what are some of the some of the favorites uh, that maybe guests order? Well, I, and I will say with, with extreme pride that my wife, Paige, runs the bakery, manages the bakery along with our bakery general manager, Omar Sharifi. And uh, uh, Paige takes, and they, Paige and Omar take a lot of pride in what we produce in our bakery here. We are in, in our, we have a building here in Norcross, which I named when we bought, I bought the building, I named it Vienna. So we have, we have a welcome to Vienna sign out front. And, uh, and interestingly enough, by the way, our, our SEO optimizer, our in-house young lady who is managing social media, may help working with us on, on uh, HR. Her name is Karina Posh. She started with us a year ago, and she's from Vienna. So that's, that's appropriate. So we have the real inflection of, of the Viennese bloodstream here in Cafe Intermezzo. But the pastries that, that of, the, of, the 40, of the 50 we have on our list, basically, the pastries that are the most popular pastries, we, we call them pastries in European tradition. Pastries in America, that word often means, you know, like a, like a croissant or a Danish or something like that. But it's, it's the whole line of, of baked goods, in, of, of, I should say, of cakes in Europe, torts, tarts, uh, as opposed to uh, uh, breads, which are, which are baked goods. So anyway, uh, we have a, our Oreo cheesecake is our number one seller. And uh, we have one called Frutti di Bosco, which means in Italian, fruits of the forest. We inter, we uh, 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 import that tart from Italy, from Mil- near Milan. And it has red and black raspberries and red and black currants 
on uh, on shortbread with a Chantilly cream. It's absolutely wonderful, which is why it sells so well. The same bakery provides us our uh, tiramisu, which we import from Italy. So it's uh, uh, it's the real version of tiramisu. And uh, what are some of the other? Oh, our traditional cheesecake. Uh, cheesecakes are are amazing sellers, and and we. We bake them with such pride as we do everything and bake and decorate with pride. But a cheesecake is something that, of course, there are different genres of that we're all familiar with. You know, a New York cheesecake might be very firm and uh, on the denser, drier side. Our cheesecakes tend to be very creamy and uh, and thus very popular. We sell we sell thousands of slices, by the way, of pastry per week. So we're very gratified to say that. The, uh, 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 the Trace Leches. Is another wonderful one, Trace Leches Cheesecake. Uh, we have a red velvet tort, which I, I was very shy to add to our list, but but finally did so at the coaxing of, of Paige, my wife, and uh, and uh, some other people in the organization. Because I, I, I wanted the menu, the pastry list, to be more European-leaning, and red velvet to me is very, very Southern United States American-leaning. However, people love it. And it's great. We make the red velvet here. We bake it here and decorate it beautifully. Our our, our bakers and decorators are very prideful and uh, very careful about what they do. And and it's it's a wonderful item. It's a wonderful chocolate cake. Uh, and we have a white chocolate raspberry cheesecake that's just stupendous. But so that's kind of the group of the of the top sellers among those. Yeah, and and our listeners can't see me right now, but I'm literally drooling, uh, <laughs> picturing these lovely uh, slices of sweetness in uh, in all their beauty and all their glory. So I'm I'm wiping my chin as you're uh, as you're talking about these, Brian. So for our listeners, uh, uh, those who maybe haven't experienced uh, the beautiful cafe intermezzos, what is what are the best places for them to visit. Uh, and if someone wants to talk coffee houses with you, how do they get in touch with you and Cafe Intermezzo? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. This question was asked of me uh, four days ago by a young woman whom we just hired uh, in for Nashville, for our cafe in Nashville that's reopening December 1. Nashville has been on a very, very strict lockdown, Tennessee is. And uh, young woman is just is just terrific. Her name is Giedra. Olson, O-L-S-O-N, last name, no relationship. It's her, her former husband's last name. He's an American guy, and she is from Lithuania. And I love internationality, by the way, in our organization. It, to me, it's fundamental. Our general manager, uh, Joy David at Avalon, is is from Thailand. And we've got people in, the, as I mentioned, Karina earlier from Austria. We've got uh, Ahmet, our toker, our general manager in Midtown, is from Turkey. Uh, we've got people from all over the world, and we really, really uh, promote that aspect of of both staff and guests from all over the world enjoying uh, the European coffee house. And people from other cultures tend to be totally familiar with them, like the Eastern Europeans are, like like Yidra from uh, Lithuania. Uh, people from Japan, Japan coffee houses in Japan have been prominent for many decades, and uh, and. Korean, Asian cultures of all nationalities love coffee houses. And uh, so it's, it's, but she asked me back to the point. She asked me a question, Giedra did, during our orientation meeting the other day. 
which is your favorite? I said, Gaither, that's like asking me uh, which of my three children is my favorite. And uh, <laughs> I said, these cafes are, they're not, they're not as close in my heart to my children, of course, by any means. However, they are wonderful, wonderful each and in their own respect. And they're all different. I love going to each one of them. It's almost like saying, what's your favorite pastry? Cause it'll change with my mood or my, my sentiments at the time. The cafes are, are such Dunwoody, the original one, has an advantage, especially in this scenario, of a really uh, dynamic year-round outdoor seating area. And it's covered with a roof, but we have doors that I had made in Germany uh, uh, many number, a number of years ago that so we can open that terrace, as we call it, the terrace patio, open it uh, almost fully, but you're still protected. We have heaters out there. We have terraces at all of the cafe intermezzos because a terrace is fundamental to me, to a European coffee house. It's essential. And uh, uh, Avalon is very interesting. It's, it's such a beautifully conceived community that uh, Mark Toro and North American Properties developed in Alpharetta. Avalon is very outdoors, as mixed-use communities are nowadays, modeled, fashioned uh, very strongly after the Grove in Los Angeles that's been highly successful for a number of years. But it means walking around outside. There's a fire pit in front of the cafe terrace of one of the, one of the terraces we have there. <clears throat> so it's a, it's conducive to outdoors, but it also has a very warm as the, all the cafes do. I like to think a very warm, uh, inviting environments inside as well. Midtown is at the corner of 11th and Peachtree, And I'm so grateful to, to the Seelig companies for the original developers of that building that we are in for, for uh, bringing us there because the location has been just astoundingly, astoundingly well accepted in that midtown neighborhood. We're diagonal from the Federal Reserve, which is good. It's nice to kind of see all of our cash sort of sitting over there, <laughs> our American cash. But it's uh, it's a very walkable area. There's a, the Lowe's Hotel is in the same building we are. So we, we do a lot of, uh, uh, we are able to uh, entertain and and serve a lot of the guests of the Lowe's Hotel, for which we're very grateful, and their condominia upstairs, offices. Uh, but it's be, being Midtown Atlanta; it's a very walked area, and we have our we have huge doors there that electrically open vertically to be able to seat on the terrace year round, and depending upon weather conditions, and uh, and that's very conducive to enjoying sitting at at our our French and German tables and chairs on Peachtree Street, watching people walk by, just as you see in every European city, especially in Paris and uh, and uh, Vienna. Well, so. I want to encourage all of our listening audience who haven't had the pleasure of a cafe intermezzo experience at, at any of those locations. Uh, Brian, it's been an absolute delight to have <laughs> you on the show. Uh, Jeff, it's been a delight uh, to have you on the show as well. So thank you to both of you for... Uh, uh, for joining us today and sharing your insights and your experiences with our listening audience. Thank as you. We close, Bill, thank you also. You're welcome. Uh, as we close, if you want to keep up with the latest in pro business news, follow us on social media for the latest stories. If you want to listen to future profit sense podcasts, you can find us on ProfitSenseRadio.com. This is Profit Sense with Bill McDermott signing off. Make it a great day.